Welcome back, and thank you for joining us on another edition of Nickel City Sportscast. Jerry and I have a fun show lined up for you, but before we get into the meteor portions of today's podcast, let's get you caught up with the word around the water cooler. The NHL draft lottery was this past Tuesday night, and the Sabres went in with the fifth overall spot and an 8.5% chance of being awarded the first overall pick. However, that went to the New Jersey Devils, and Buffalo dropped two spots to number 7. They also hold the 26th pick in the first round as well. The NFL draft is quickly approaching, and reports of prospects who either have meetings or visits lined up with teams are coming in in abundance. Those with connections to the Bills are Western New York native and Pitt running back Kadri Olison, running backs Daryl Henderson, Miles Sanders, and Jalen Moore Jr., wide receivers Debo Samuel, DeAndre Tompkins, and Gary Jennings, tight ends Noah Fant and Trayvon Wesco, offensive tackles Greg Little and Yosua Neiman, center Ellington Jenkins, Cornerbacks, Hemp Cheevers and Tay Hayes. Safeties, Cameron Glenn and Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. Linebacker, Vashawn Joseph. Defensive ends, Sharif Miller and O'Shane Semenes. As well as potential top five pick, Alabama's defensive tackle, Keenan Williams. The Bills also held their local pro day yesterday, headlined by UB quarterback Tyree Jackson, as well as UB wide receiver Anthony Johnson. Wide receivers George Rushing, defensive end Chuck Harris, cornerbacks Cam Lewis and Tatum Slack also joined them from UB, as well as former St. Francis High School quarterback Jake Dogala, all of whom participated in UB's Pro Day last month, and none of which will count against Buffalo's 30 pre-draft visits. Sticking with the Bills, the team has made a few roster moves this week, starting with the re-signing of exclusive rights free agent defensive end Eddie Yarbrough and former Detroit Lions hybrid linebacker defensive end Eli Harold to one-year deals. They also made another addition to their running back core as they were allocated former UK rugby star Christian Wade as part of the NFL International Player Pathway Program. The program, which was instituted in 2017, is to provide international athletes the opportunity to improve their skills, compete, and ultimately earn a spot on NFL rosters. The 27-year-old native of Slow England, Wade was most most recently with the Gallagher Premiership, which was England's top division, and was selected to the British and Irish Lions as the highest honor for a rugby player in the UK. He is best known for his speed, acceleration, and agility. It has also been reported by Draft Diamond's Damon Talbot that the Bills have shown interest and will bring in on Monday for a workout wide receiver Mikhail McKay. McKay, who went undrafted in 2016, has had stints with the Colts, Jaguars, Broncos, Titans, Bears, and Cowboys of the NFL, and most recently with the San Antonio Commanders of the now-defunct AAF. In eight games with the Commanders, McKay had 22 catches on 46 targets for 375 yards and four touchdowns. Speaking of the Alliance, it seems that if reports by Sports Business Daily's Daniel Kaplan are to be believed, the fans of the now-bankrupt Developmental League should consider themselves fortunate they managed to even get eight weeks of spring football this year. Allegedly, back in December, the AAF approached Vince McMahon's XFL about a possible merger, which Mr. McMahon ultimately declined. According to Kaplan's report, the alliance had already begun running out of money and was, quote, on life support when initial primary investor Reggie Fowler failed to come through with his $28 million investment by Christmas. Making sure to keep themselves in the headlines, it is being reported that Vince McMahon's XFL does not intend to have any collegiate age restrictions when they begin their inaugural season in 2020. This would allow players to either jump straight to the XFL out of high school or play a year or two in college and then move on. 
This should catch the attention of a lot of athletes who have either been overlooked during the recruitment process, or as Clemson's young star wide receiver Justin Ross stated last week when commenting on the opportunity to earn an XFL paycheck, it's hard for an 18 or 19 year old to turn down. The wait is finally over as athletic director of UB Mark Allnott has officially announced the hiring of the men's basketball team's next head coach. This would be Jim Weitzel, who previously served as the team's associate head coach since 2015. Weitzel signed a five-year, $300,000 deal, and when explaining the process of hiring a new coach, Allnott stated that we had close to 40 names, and we wanted someone who had a high level of integrity, someone who was known to develop players and understood the style of play, and someone who had energy, and it was a fit for Buffalo. It appears that they found just that guy in Weitzel as he stated that he intends to keep that same style of play and why it was so important to retain assistant coach Jamie Quarles who was a key contributor in the development of that scheme. It's not the only good news to come out of the UB basketball program this week as guard Sierra Dillard became the first player in program history to be selected to the WNBA draft. Dillard was was picked 20th overall in the second round by the Minnesota Lynx. In baseball, the Bisons have lost three straight home games as well as three on the road this week. But it's not all bad news as they did get back uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who, in a losing effort 9-8 in a 10-inning game against the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre, uh, Scranton Vlad finished the night going 2-4 for four with a homer and doubling as part of a 4-RBI night. Buffalo is now 2-6, for six and currently sitting at the bottom of the North with a five-game road, road stretch ahead of them, continuing against the Sox before traveling to Pawtucket. Those are your headlines for this week. When I come back, Jerry will join me to go over the firing of Sabres coach Phil Housley, NFL draft prospects you've been sleeping on, and much more. Make sure to stay put, because you're not going to want to miss this. All right, and we're back, and I am with Jerry. Jerry, thank you for coming on for a fourth time fourth time's the charm <laughs> so i want to get this thing kicked off with the housley firing so as 1 p.m monday in a moment you and i and everybody else pretty much saw coming the sabers relieved phil housley uh, his head coaching duties and in two years as coach housley was 58 84 and 22 and when the former sabers defenseman was hired back in june of 2017 it was it was met with optimism and that was due in large part to Housley's success with the defense in Nashville, who just that previous year had went to the Stanley Cup Finals. And while his inaugural season behind the bench didn't go exactly as everyone had hoped and planned, and they went 25-45-12, and 12, and they just earned 62 points, and finishing dead last in the division for the second straight year, as well as last overall in the league, it did manage them to win the the draft lottery and the opportunity to get you know phenom Rasmus Dahlin so that worked out somehow and Housley got even more help in that summer and we picked up Carolina winger Jeff Skinner from Carolina so brought him in and you paired him with Eichel and Reinhardt and all of a sudden you know hopes are high again and everyone is banking on Skinner to add the spark that they desperately need to succeed in 2018. Alas, that didn't happen. And, you know, 
it was they had a stretch of exciting games. There was a ten game winning streak in November, and there were victories over playoff teams like Winnipeg, Pittsburgh, San Jose, and even President Trophy winning Atlantic Division champions, the the Lightning. And then things just completely unraveled from there. So the team would go sixteen thirty two and seven for the remainder of the season, totaling seven six points on the year, and they finished with the longest active playout playoff drought in the league in eight consecutive seasons. So both seasons under Bottle and Housley turned out to be worse than even their predecessors, Murray and Bilesma. And they left the franchise with 81 points in 2015 and 16 and 79 in 16 and 17. So now there is a lot that went wrong here. And we touched on some of those things in episode three, but Jerry, what do you believe it was that ultimately cost Housley his job? Just his emotion on the bench really didn't show any. Um, and I just think that I know fans don't really have a say in it, but it's, he just didn't show a lot. He didn't show improvement. He actually showed uh regression instead of progression. Um, that 10 game winning streak was probably the worst thing to happen to Buffalo. And at least for the fans, because everybody got their hopes up, thought that, Hey, maybe they could actually be something, but it's just the real team came out um, after, after November. And, and we finally, not finally, but we got to see what uh, what this team actually is, and it's just not a good playoff, or it's not a good hockey team at all. And I know when I talked to you last um, in episode three, I I didn't think that Housley was going to get fired. I know I was I was on the uh, the minority thinking that I'd like to have him around for another year. Let him let him put another put a nice team in front of him. There's, they have the cap space and go out and get a couple players, but obviously that didn't work out and now we're back to square one looking for a coach and hopefully they get it right this time. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it's funny that you, you say that that 10 game winning streak probably was one of the worst things to happen. And in retrospect, you're, you're probably right because with everything that happened that previous year, like I stated before, and then you've got all this young talent and you're thinking, all right, they they've had one year under, under Housley and his system, you know, sure. You always expect hiccups and things not to go perfectly when you're bringing in a new head coach with a, a brand new system and a bunch of young talent. But I mean, things just, they got out of hand really quickly and it, it went from an ultimate high to one of the most ultimate lows. And to think that they actually would be worse than what they were the previous two years, I think is a little mind blowing when you think about it. But I mean, like you said, it's a fresh start. Now we're, we're back to square one. Um, Like we had stated in in the previous episode, first things first is probably re-signing Skinner. And right now we're in the midst of a head coaching search and we've got a list of of possible candidates here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go one by one with them. I'll, I'll tell you, who the candidate is a little bit, something about them. And then you tell me what your thoughts are on that candidate. So we've got a couple here that are, are that are a few of them actually that are, are quote unquote veteran head coaches in the NHL. First one being Joe Quenville. Now he's better known as coach Q and, and he's been an NHL coach for 23 years. And his most recent stint was with the Blackhawks from eight, from 2008 to uh, 2018. 
and he had an all-time record of 890 game, uh, 890 wins, 532 losses, and 77 times. And he had 18 playoff appearances and three Stanley Cup titles. However, it was reported that the Sabres had reached out to Coach Q, but he had already begun negotiations and has since accepted the coaching job with the Panthers. Now, what's your thoughts on Coach Q? Were you hoping that this was the guy for us? And were you disappointed when you found out he he wound up in Florida? Yes, uh, he was probably my number one. He was uh, the first choice on my list. Um, as soon as as soon as all the rumblings about like, and I'm in a couple of different Sabres groups on Facebook, so this is where everything comes from. But as soon as like the rumblings of everybody, like we need to fire Housley, Housley needs to go, blah blah blah, and just looking at the list of candidates, Joel Q ended up being my number one. Um, he was there for and they're still in they're still in their prime but he was there for the glory years of uh jonathan taves and patrick kane and buffalo doesn't quite have a pair like that but say they were to re-sign skinner uh they could have they would have had their version of kane and taves with skinner and eichel and coach q would just kind of pick up where he left off and and help develop these guys and maybe bring a, a cup or two to buffalo but um it looks like that's not going to happen because he's he's out in Florida or going down to Florida. Yeah, and I I remember hearing that when his name was brought up initially before he actually accepted the the Florida job, that while he was a favorite, some people believe that he might not have been a good fit because he was more of a guy to come in and work with a more established roster rather than develop a young one like the Sabers have currently. Do you feel like that's accurate or do you feel like maybe that's a little off base? I think it's a little off base because he has um, up until up until his firing, he was the longest tenure coach in the league. So he kind of he's kind of developed and grown with most of the players that are on Chicago, uh, Duncan Keith, Brent Seabrook, again, Kane and Taves. Um, he's had Artemi Panarin there um, and just. Corey Crawford, the goaltenders, they're just multiple players that have gone through, but he's been there for most, if not all of their careers. And so I, I don't think he's more of a going to a place that needs to be a sta- or an already established kind of coach. I think he would have been a perfect fit for any one of the 31 rosters. Yeah, I was a little confused where that came from, especially he had a he had a long stint with Chicago. And like you said, he had a lot of young talent come through there that obviously he had to have had a part in developing. So yeah, that was a little, that was a little weird to hear, but he's out of the picture now. So we're not going to waste any more time on him. The next guy up is Todd McClellan. And when his name was brought up, he was believed to be the front runner. So um, according to TSN's Bob McKenzie, the team had met with the veteran coach. He was in town to watch his son Tyson participate in the NCAA frozen four tournament. That's been taking place. And a deal never formalized or was finalized, apparently. And McClellan is no longer even a consideration. So you could take him off the list now, too. And McClellan, who in 11 years as a coach, has an all-time record of 806, 434, and 282. And he's got seven playoff appearances under his belt. And he's made it as far as the Western Conference Finals twice in uh, 2009 and 2010. And he is now expected to take the LA Kings head coaching position. So what are your thoughts on McClellan and what he might've been able to bring to the Sabres? 
he I, I'm a little less on him. Um, not not a huge fan. He the couple the playoff appearances that he's had. Um, aside maybe one with Edmonton, I think mostly were with San Jose, who uh, have been a really good team. They've been they've always been a good regular season team, at least in uh, recent years. And I know he's had a little bit to do with it, but um, it's I, I don't think that their success is or their success was because of him per se. I just think they've they've just had great leadership and great overall team of veterans and and solid young players. And then when he came over to Edmonton, he was gifted with one of the best, uh, arguably one of the best players in the league in McDavid, and they haven't really been able to do much. Um, he, McDavid, as a player, is putting up numbers, scoring lots of goals, and getting lots of points. And And I don't want to blame everything on McClellan, but um, it, a lot of it has to do with management and, and things there out in Edmonton. They're just – that team's a mess. But I he really couldn't do much with one of the best players. I, I don't – I don't think he would have much success here if we were to come here. Yeah, he seemed like more of a, a consolation prize to Quenville. Um, but I would have I would have been scratching my head had the Sabres interviewed McClellan and automatically gave him a contract without even possibly considering talking to anybody else. But he's he's out of the picture moving on from him. Uh the next guy would be Alan Vigneault. Did I say his name right? Is that is that Vigneault? Yeah, I I think you got his last name right. It's uh, it, all these French names are really hard to say. He's a French Canadian, right? Yeah. So I was, I I never took I took Spanish in in high school, so I did my best with that one. So no disrespect to the coach, but uh, after four seasons as the Rangers coach, uh, Vigneault was fired after the franchise missed the playoffs for the first time since 2010. It was also the first time that he as a coach failed to lead his team to the playoffs since 2008. And interestingly enough, it was reported just last week that Vigneault would coach Team Canada at the upcoming World Hockey Championship in May. And Sabres GM Jason Botterill just so happens to be on the management team for, for Team Canada. And that's not the only connection that he has to Buffalo as he's also worked with current assistant GM Randy Sexton while he was with the senators in 92 and 95. So he right now, as far as reported head coaches, he is the top, uh, the top veteran coach candidate, I would say. So what do you, what are your thoughts on him? I like him. He has, he's had a, he's got a solid uh, resume career going on. He's um, he's been as far as the Stanley cup finals. I don't think he's won one yet. Um, he, when he was with Vancouver, I remember them losing to Boston and all the, the Vancouver riots that they had out there. And then I believe he lost one also with the Rangers, but with the Rangers, he, I, they've, they've built from within too. And that's kind of what Buffalo's doing. So I think that with, just based off the success that he had with the Rangers, continuously leading them to the playoffs for a couple of years, um, I, I, I would love to have him here and see if he could continue that success here and kind of and kind of help out our young guys just like he did with New York. Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about him. I'm just going off of the stuff that I researched about him. He definitely has the pedigree. So you would think if you bring him in there's a respect factor that kind of automatically comes with him because when you're a young player, you're going to look at him and go, all right, 
this guy has a really good resume. He clearly knows what he's doing. Whatever happened recently with New York, it might have been it could have been a, a number of factors involved with that. But yeah, you could see a bunch of young guys. Um, even they're not they're young, but they're they're veterans. In in Eichel and Skinner going, yeah, I can get behind this. They're bringing in a good veteran coach, and I definitely am intrigued and would want to work with this guy. Me, I'm I'm. I want them to do something out of the box and I, you would almost expect them to go for a veteran and especially one that they have some type of connection to like they, they do in Vino. I am interested in them looking at either a couple of, of quote unquote rookie head coaches and, and they're younger too. And that would be either Chris Taylor or Sheldon Keefe. So we'll start off with Taylor. Taylor is, probably the dark horse in all of this. Cause I, I have heard that they haven't even spoken about it with him. And that might have more to do with the fact that he's the, the current Rochester Amherst head coach and they're currently in a, a playoff push and they're trying to go for a Calder cup in Rochester. Um, he's also a former Sabres. So, you know, you got that going for him. And while he lacks the head coaching experience at, at the major level, he does bring with him the ability to develop young talent. And again, the Sabres have that in abundance. He's, he's been with the Amherst as a developmental coach, and then he got promoted to an assistant coach during 2011 and 2012. And then he took up that same position as assistant coach with the Penguins AHL affiliate in 2016 and 2017. So currently, the uh Amherst, I, I believe they're in second in their division right now, and they've already they've already clinched a playoff spot, and they're looking real good so far. I, I wouldn't be mad. I I would really be intrigued that they would bring in a young guy like Taylor, who has already worked with their young talent that they're trying to they're they're trying to bring in and and contribute to this team. And it, it might it might help him. He might be the spark that this team needs in order to get over the hump. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that if anybody has has an edge on getting the next uh, head coaching job with the Buffalo Sabers, it would be Chris Taylor and looking to uh, quote unquote pro- promote from within. Um, as you mentioned, he is he has had some success with the uh, Rochester Americans and developing the players and quite a few of these players are going to be on the roster next year. So he would have some familiarity with, with a couple of these guys. A couple of them that we we saw even at the end of the year this year uh, in Nylander and uh, Olofsson. But I would think that if, if they're not looking for a veteran head coach per se, that it would be somebody like Chris Taylor and you hit the nail right on the head uh, by saying that they haven't had any contact with him because of the fact that they are in the playoffs and he's, he's trying to focus on trying to bring the Calder cup home to Rochester. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you said it yourself, someone like him. So someone like him would end up being Sheldon Keefe. Now he is also in the minor league ranks and he's the current head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs affiliate team, the Marlins. And since he's took over the head coaching job for, for them, Keefe has produced, produced three consecutive playoff appearances along with a Calder cup championship just last year. He's turned the team into a dominant force in the AHL and he's clinched the playoff, a playoff spot in four consecutive years. That's counting this year. 
And they're currently sitting in third place in the North Division, just behind Chris Taylor's Amherst. And many of those believe that Keefe won't leave the Marlies unless it's for the perfect opportunity. And while the Sabres, that job may not seem ideal or even attractive to to anybody, it may seem attractive to a younger coach like Sheldon Keefe, who's looking to cut his teeth in the NHL, especially if he gets the opportunity to work with young talent like Eichel, Reinhardt, Darlene, and if they re-sign him, possibly even Skinner, who make up the nucleus of that team. So I find it hard to imagine that a 38-year-old head coach would want to turn down that kind of opportunity to be an NHL head coach. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. Um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the – what the NFL is starting to do with going with uh, younger coaches too. Like you got your uh, Sean McVay's um, and I forgot. Exactly. Yeah. I I forgot his name, but I knew a team I was, I was looking for it. So it's like, he wouldn't come in and be the youngest head coach in the NHL that belongs to uh, Chicago's uh, current head coach who took over for uh, Joel Q, but um, he definitely has some success at the uh, AHL level. Um, Toronto, probably has one of the best farm systems in in the entire league um with the Toronto Marlies uh they they've done really good with drafting they've done really good with developing their players uh Mitch Marner um Alex Nylander um and just they've even the players that made the jump right away like Austin Matthews I know he hasn't really dealt with with uh Keith it hasn't been in the AHL but just in general, Toronto, Toronto knows how to scout talent and just getting, getting those players um, for Keith to develop is, it's just been, it's just helped him be successful and in, in line to land a head coaching job within the next year or two. Yeah. So like I said, if it were me, I'd be looking at Taylor or Keith. Um, if, if obviously things don't work out with Vino, I'm assuming that right now with Quinville and McClellan off the table, with the world championships coming up just next month, this might get dragged out a little further and they might, you know, go into May and then the world championships talking to him and kind of seeing how he works with team Canada and maybe get a feel for him and to have a conversation and possibly even offer him a job. But I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in seeing where this goes over the next month or so. Cause I believe that's how much longer it's going to take. It'll take another month at the very least, they're definitely going to hire somebody before the draft takes place because you're going to want to have that established and you're going to want to know exactly what type of system you're running, what kind of players you're looking for. There's a lot that's going to go into it, especially when you have two first-round picks coming up. So there's there's a lot to do, a lot to discuss, a lot to plan for. Um, but that's that's going to be coming up in the near future. But there is something that's happening right now that you are trying to sell me on. And that's partly because I'm not a huge hockey fan outside of our hometown team. So what it, what exactly is it that you're trying to sell me on, Jeremy? What I'm trying to sell you on is what I believe is the the best the best part of all of sports, and and that's the NHL playoffs. Uh, the Super Bowl is Super Bowl is an awesome time to get family and friends together and watch one single game on a Sunday and, and just have a just have a giant party. But 
the NHL playoffs from start to finish, going through your 28 games at max if you go to all game sevens uh, per team. And it's it's just amazing. Um, and it's just, number one, it is unpredictable. What if I told you that the number one team in the league this year with the number one score on their team and a team that has won three of the last 10 Stanley Cups um, would be in 0-2 holes right now to start off the playoffs. Would, would you believe me if I said that? No, I'd find that extremely hard to believe, actually. Well, it's believe it because that's what's happening. The Tampa Bay Lightning who is that number one team, uh, and they are actually going into Columbus now in an 0-2 hole. Uh, when everybody on their brackets have had them pick to win the Stanley Cup and and maybe even sweep the first round, and obviously that's not happening. And then the Pittsburgh Penguins are also in a hole right now, uh, down two games to none. Uh, they are going back to Pittsburgh. They didn't have the uh, the first round home ice advantage. They were in New York for the first two games, so they they have a little bit better of a chance to kind of get that that home crowd into it. Um, but it's just. People with the experience of the Pittsburgh Penguins and, and with the way that Tampa's been playing all year, winning uh, 62 games this year, it's it's just it's just amazing. Um, and you're getting teams like the St. Louis Blues, who have at the at the turn of the new year, January 1st, they were at the bottom of the entire league, and they are in they they came or they have a first round matchup with the Winnipeg Jets, and they actually took game one. And another team, as I mentioned, the New York Islanders, who just 10 months ago uh, lost their star player, number one draft pick, John Tavares, uh, to another team that's in the playoffs, the Toronto Maple Leafs, and their huge turnaround. And and this goes back to our last discussion about the coach. And I've never been a huge uh, NHL coach kind of guy where I, where I think that the coach does a lot for the team. But just looking at the New York Islanders, and they got – uh, last year's Stanley Cup winning coach Barry Trotz from the from the Washington Capitals, he completely turned that team around. He's got them again in a two nothing two nothing uh, series lead over over the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins, a, a team that all NHL fans love to hate because they just keep on winning. All right, so I, I got to tell you, I'm I'm intrigued, and I'm partly intrigued because, like you said, I, I find it a little hard to believe that these these teams that have come in with the, the the championships and the the wins loss just the overall status of how good that they are that they're in the hole already so early on for whatever reason doesn't matter because normally you would assume that a team that good coming in they're probably going to wipe the floor with whoever they they go up against in the first round at least. It's almost like a formality, or at least you would expect it to. But you're saying that that's not the case at all. To which I have to ask, why do you think that is? Do you think that it's these teams being overconfident, that they're thinking what I'm thinking is that, that this first round is it's it's going to be nothing. We're going to walk in, we're going to deal with these guys, and then we're going to move on. Or do you think that the amount of talent that has been spread out recently – amongst all these teams that it's just it's more of an even playing field especially when you get into the playoffs like this is this is crunch time for a lot of these guys they this is what that long excruciating season is all about is getting to this point 
So you have a shot at the ultimate prize and everyone's pretty much just stepping up their game. Yeah. The playoffs just, the playoffs just intensify uh, the level of play. It's it, every single, every single play, every single hit is just, you can, you can feel it in your living room, just watching it on TV. Um, Tampa being in an 0-2 hole, Pittsburgh being in an 0-2 hole. Again, Pittsburgh, like I said, they started out on the road. Uh, the Islanders were a pretty good team this year, um, starting with the coach, Barry Trotz. But Tampa Tampa just is surprising everybody. And I, I don't think they take anything for granted and think and thought that it was going to be a cakewalk through. Um, I, I definitely don't think that they thought that they would be in an 0-2 hole. There's still potentially five games left in the series. But it's – it's just fun to watch. And it's like, people are tuning in just to see like, Hey, um, my Stanley cup winning team or my Stanley cup predicted team is they're losing. What, what's going on here? I need to see what's going on. And it's just, it's just amazing. Like I'm watching currently watching the Calgary, Colorado game. It just hits back and forth um, over the course of a seven game series. These teams just hate each other more and more. Uh, Just in the, um, the Tampa game yesterday, uh, the leading score, Nick, Kita Kucherov took a uh, just took was hot headed and, and took a penalty at the end of the game and now he's suspended for game three and it's just it's just going to keep on getting worse and there was a huge hit today that happened in the Washington Capitals game um, that uh, he got the one uh, Furland I think his name was he got kicked out of the game he took a five minute uh, major penalty match penalty and he's going to be having a hearing from the nhl he could be out for game three uh maybe come back for game four and have bodies flying left and right it's just one thing happens it escalates leads to another tons of hits not a lot of fights um not a lot of goal scoring because it's just so it's it's just tightened up but explosive hockey yeah and especially exciting if one of these teams right now that are down by two games start making a comeback, especially what you say it was Pittsburgh. They're, they're heading back home now. And that's what exactly what they're hoping to set out to do is, is mount a comeback. And hopefully by being at home, that gives them just the, the jolt that they need to do so. But I mean, that's going to be good for the NHL. It's going to be good for ratings. It's, I mean, it's, it's going to be exciting for fans because you're going to have a team going in there with a two game lead in a seven game series. And they're going, Oh my God, this is, this is going to be incredible. We're going to have a lot of fun watching this. But if their team drops two in a row to, you know, two road games, it becomes even more interesting now. And then everyone's going to be on the edge of their seat and it's only the first round. So I, I can definitely see your point there. I would think what, another one of the debates, because I'm, again, I'm a football fan. That's, that's where I live and breathe. And one of the debates I always have, is, especially when it comes to playoffs, is – NFL versus NHL, and what do you think is for if you were a player? What do you think is more intense? Do you think it's more intense to go into a playoff game in the NFL realizing it's one and done, and if you don't show up today, there is no tomorrow, or do you think it's more intense for the NHL where? you know that you at the very least have four or five games to play and you'll at least get one of those games, if not two in your own arena, in your own backyard. I think as a, as a professional athlete, you always want to play more games. So the, 
the NBA and the NHL and the, even the MLB playing a multiple game series is is more is is what the athlete wants. Intensity, as far as I mean, the hockey is one of the greatest sports on the world on earth. Um, it's I am also a huge football football fan, just like yourself. Um, I love watching football on Thursdays. I love watching college football on Saturdays. I love watching the NFL on Sundays and Mondays, and and that's what I do all day Sunday and just all season long. I, and but it's just to to sit down and watch a hockey game and knowing as a player or even just as a fan, knowing that okay, they didn't get things done in game one or they didn't they didn't end up winning game one or game two they have another chance you're not you're not just done um we could learn from that move on and and i I do like that aspect of it um it's to answer your question though it it is really hard to say because the one the one and done or or what they do in the nfl is it's just that you have you have one shot one one opportunity to to kind of to capture, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> capture this moment, Eminem. I'm sorry, it was there. I had to reach out and grab. Yeah, I, I kind of set it up for you. I do want to. <laughs> I do want to say one thing though. Um, if for any for any non or like beginner hockey fan, somebody that's trying to get into the sport, if I were to say, if I were to tell you to do one thing to try to get into the sport and see exactly what I'm talking about, tune into the first ten minutes of either game three of the Pittsburgh series or game three of the Tampa Columbus series. Uh, Why? Because both of those teams, Columbus and Pittsburgh are back home and you're just going to get, you're basically going to get the same intensity, but from two different perspectives, Pittsburgh going back home in an O2 hole, they're the crowd. They're just going to come out firing. They're going to be all over uh, the Islanders. They're just going to, they're not going to back down. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, Columbus going back home over the number one seed at Tampa Bay lightning with a two, with a two, nothing advantage. They're just going to, they're, they're going to have the crowd on their feet. So tune into one of those two games or even both, if you can, and just watch the first 10 minutes and you'll know exactly this is, this is what all playoff hockey is all about. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, the the talent that you're going to be able to witness. I mean, th- these are some of the most elite athletes that you'll ever see. I mean, we, you just mentioned the two series that you would want people to, to look into, Pittsburgh and, and Tampa series. You've got Stamkos, Hedman. You've got Malkin, Crosby. I mean, there's there's a lot of really solid hockey to be had. Um, in this first round, the, there's a lot of talent, and it's definitely got to be something exciting. Like I said, I just, I never sit down to watch it because right now, especially, I'm kind of deflated. It, it is a very long season, and to be a Sabers fan, that's that very long season is almost doubled. So I'm almost exhausted, but I could definitely see it for a diehard fan like yourself, and for plenty of other people, how exciting it could be to watch these guys play. Um, like I said before, my argument has always been one of the things I like about football is that one and done aspect for the playoffs. It, especially that the wild card would, I mean, to see a team like if, if we do it again, I mean, we broke, we broke the streak, you know, just another, you know, the previous year. And when we went into that wild card game, it was just it was amazing. It was so surreal. And if we had actually gone further 
to to cheer on a team like that where you know that their next game is very much their last if things don't work out and if these guys don't have their head on straight and they they go in there completely focused and completely ready i mean that's the aspect of football that i love and that's the argument i use against you know when people bring up nhl playoffs versus nfl playoffs I go, well, these guys, like most, like you said, most athletes would want more than one chance to to win a game and, and advance their team further on. But for football, this is it. Your season is done after all this. You show up and you miss a tackle or you drop a pass or you throw an intercept, whatever it is, it could completely cost not just yourself but your team and a city – their hopes and dreams for a championship. But the but what I definitely give it to the NHL and the players is that their their season is so much longer. It is so intense. And to go from that to seven game series in how, how many rounds? It's three rounds four, total in the four, four rounds. rounds. Yep. Four rounds total. That's a lot of hockey to be played not just for a year or a season, but for the playoffs alone. I, I And this is what I'll say. While I love football and it, it's exciting to see a team raise, you know, the Lombardi trophy and celebrate, I'm, I'm putting on the record right now that the most satisfying, satisfying championship to be had is the Stanley Cup. And that's only because of how much you have to actually endure through a season in order to get it. So I will give you that. Yeah, be, just basically between between the weeks of the conference championship games to the Super Bowl, there's two. There's a two week break there. You could teams are playing a seven game series within that two weeks in 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 an NHL series. Um, it's just like I said. For a one game, for a one game game, uh, the Super Bowl nothing compares to that. I I'll sit around and watch the Super Bowl every week of the year if I could. Um, but the intensity of hockey, uh, the intensity of the NHL playoffs, just over the course of the over the course of the four, five, six, seven games that they're playing, these teams just absolutely hate each other. A series that we haven't even talked about, the Boston Bruins and Toronto Maple Leafs. These two, these teams go back to they go back hundred years and they're they they're against each other in the first round um they've been against each other in the first round for the i don't have the the schedule in front of me but it's i remember a few years ago uh or more than a few years ago they had they were in the first round together and toronto blew a three goal lead in game seven to to lose um to lose and have boston advance and it's just like just every Every time these two are against each other, that comes up, or or the just a preseason fight even comes up that these two teams are going at, it. and it's just like just everything intensifies from from a game before, and it just gets it, it just gets better and better. The storylines just just get bigger and bigger. Well, I'm glad you brought up that series because before we move on to our next topic, I want to get your opinion because I know a lot of Sabres fans have been asked in the the Toronto Boston series, who are you rooting for and why? Oh man, um, I would probably have to say Toronto, and I'm probably in the minority, but um, I just I'm sick of Boston winning. I'm sick of Boston as a city winning. Um, it, 
New England's won enough. The the Celtics, even though they haven't done anything recently, they they've won enough. Uh, the Bruins have a couple Stanley Cups in in this in the past. 10, 15 years. Uh, I just, I, I don't want to see them win again. Um, I, I think that the way that the, the way that the NHL playoffs are set up is basically it's the team one versus wild card to uh, the second best team in the, in the, in the conference versus the other wild card. And then the two divisional teams will go uh, face each other. And that's exactly what Boston and Toronto are. That's basically the divisional uh, game. And then the winner of this game ends up playing the winner of Columbus and Tampa Bay. If Tampa Bay ends up for some reason coming out of that series victorious, I, I don't think either of these two teams would get past them. I think Tampa Bay, uh, if they do come out victorious, they're going to have a huge chip on the shoulder and they're not going to get into an O2 hole again. Um, Columbus, obviously, if they end up winning that series, they can show that they can skate with the best of them. So I, I would be rooting for Columbus in the next round. But somebody has to win this series. I'm going to say Toronto. I'm with you 100%. And part of that is they're the underdog. Um, Boston, again, has plenty of championships. Uh, they've been here before. So, and it, it, like I said, I'm not worried about what Toronto fans are going to say or do by beating Boston and going on to round two, because like you said, once they get into round two, they're probably not getting out of round two. So as long as they don't win a Stanley cup championship, I'll root for Toronto against Boston in this first round. All right. So moving on now, this is one that I'm really excited about and it's draft prospects. Our listeners have been sleeping. on. So what you and I did was we each took a, offensive and defensive player that you and I think not just that are, are sleepers because that, that term gets kind of thrown around a little loosely. Um, there's plenty of guys who are, are well-known athletes that they, they deem as sleepers simply because they're not going in like the first two rounds of the draft. But you and I have kind of digged a little further and tried to find guys that we really do think are, are sleepers so I will let you kick it off um, with the first one, and then I will go ahead after that. All right, I'll start with my offensive sleeper, um, and that's going to be Caden Smith, the tight end out of Stanford. Um, he, I especially think he's a sleeper because the tight end class is really deep. Obviously, you start with the two Iowa tight ends. Uh, Irv Smith is up there, Jay Sternberger, who is another kind of, borderline sleeper but um he's he's his name has been thrown around as as a, a potential second third round guy so i i wouldn't put him in that sleeper category caden smith is a guy that that would be in that category uh he is one of my favorite under the radar guys in this draft um and as i said he, it's a, it's a fairly deep class of tight ends um with a little under two weeks ago until the draft uh walter Futter, walterfootball.com has him ranked as the 12th tight end and projected to go somewhere between the fourth and the sixth round. Um, in two years at Stanford, he's his numbers really aren't too flashy. He's combined for 70 receptions, uh, a little over 1,000 yards, and seven touchdowns. And a lot of scouts view him as a project-type player, uh, but he has a tight end frame. He's 6'5", 255 pounds. He's built like an NFL tight end. Uh, he just needs the right team basically to draft him. I mean, I guess you could say that about a lot of these players when you're getting into the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round. Um, but so the right team drafts him. Maybe he could be successful. Uh, maybe a special teams player. Uh, he did have a 
slow 40, and that's one of his biggest knocks, uh, is his speed. His 40 at the combine was 4.92. And for a guy that is going to potentially be having the football in his hands, that's that's not good, as you know that. Um, and he's not really the best route runner, but his size more than makes up for uh, what he lacks. And he's – I've watched some film on him and just – I've seen him catch balls over the middle. I've seen him go up and over uh, defensive backs and linebackers. Just he, his six five, two hundred fifty five pound frame just just makes just makes it a mismatch. And he has some he has some soft hands. I know he's had some he has had some bigger drops in college, um, but overall, like his hands are better than they are worse. Uh, despite his flaws and his low grade, I would love for Buffalo to take a chance on him. And we do have two picks as of right now in the fifth round. Uh, we picked number nine, and then we picked number 20. I believe we got that from the Chiefs trade. Um, and I think it would be a great fit to pair with somebody that we, like Tyler Croft, that we just got. Uh, Croft and Smith would give Josh Allen two tall red zone options for Josh to just kind of chuck it up into the corner of the end zone and have one of those guys come down with it. If he were to come onto Buffalo, he would be, uh, at the time, the second tallest receiving option for Josh Allen behind Tyler Croft. Uh now, Buffalo doesn't necessarily fit this bill, but a pass-heavy offense with an already established tight end one uh, is where I could see a perfect fit for Smith if it wasn't Buffalo. A team like the Saints, who went out and got Jared Cook, the Steelers, who got Vance McDonald, and the Chargers with Hunter Henry, and if Antonio Gates comes back for another year. But uh, those would be perfect teams for him. But on the from a Buffalo side of things, uh, I, I would I would not mind having him here. Yeah, I, I, admittedly, I didn't watch a ton of uh, Stanford football this year, and I didn't really get to see a whole lot of Caden Smith. But once you told me that he was your your offensive sleeper, I obviously delved in and tried to take a look see to see what what all the hype was about. And he, for me, he is your quintessential blocking tight end that will you know get you get you a first down, go over the middle, all those things you said. He's going to be a red zone threat because of his size and his, his decent catching ability. Um, I'm, I'm seeing him as a, in the mold of a Dwayne Allen or a Lee Smith. Um, he's he's going to be in there on short yardage plays. He's going to try to help the offensive line secure blocks in order to get the running back the amount of yards that they need to, to push ahead and, and get a new set of downs or even get a touchdown if they're near the goal line. Or he's going to be the guy that they're going to look to, like I said, over the middle, or maybe out in the flat, and you know, curls out. So, yeah, he's he, he's definitely probably maybe a fifth, sixth round pick. I would I would imagine if a team, I I would even say New England would look for a guy like this to bring in because as Tom Brady is getting further along in his career, I, especially last year, they probably ran the ball more than they ever had previously. And they're probably going to be looking for a guy like Caden Smith to bring in in order to help uh, the run game with Sony Michelle. So that's, that's my assessment of him. He's, he's a blocking tight end that could come in on early downs, maybe to help you move the chains or third down in order to, to help you get, you know, the first down and, and keep, keep your drives alive. And he's definitely, should be a red zone threat because of his size. He could be able to box guys out or help help out the offensive line again, get a touchdown down there in the red zone. So that's what I felt uh, Caden Smith was to me. 
Um, the guy that I chose now, I'm going to go defense here. I chose to stay local and I went with Khalil Hodge out of Buffalo. So Hodge is a six foot one, 235 pound uh, linebacker. And he didn't wow anybody um, at his pro day. Now he wasn't even invited to the combine, which that kind of blew my mind. I thought he earned a spot to, to work out and show his stuff in front of NFL teams at the combine. But, you know, he had his pro day and while his numbers don't jump off the page at you, he does have three years of, of starting experience. So in three years with the bulls, he started all 38 games that he's played and he's totaled 421 tackles, uh, 21 of those tackles for loss. He averaged 11 tackles a game, six and a half sacks, three forced fumbles, six breakups and three interceptions. So he has managed to get multiple all Mac teams. He made Mac first team twice uh, in his junior senior year. And he made the all Mac second team in his sophomore year. He was East uh, Mac East defensive player of the week. Multiple times. He has set multiple FBS era records for the university in, um, in tackles and, these would be throughout the season and for, for single games. He, he is a technician. That's, that's who Hodge is. He is a student of the game and he is a tackling machine. Now, while again, he, he lacks those attractive athletic traits. He certainly makes up for it in sound technique and the ability to diagnose plays. Um, The things that allow, these are the things that allow him to be able to close the gap quickly uh, between him and the ball carrier and even make plays in the short to, to mid range passing game. So he would be a guy that I could see going up against a Caden Smith, for example, like you said, and being able to cover him. Um, I feel like he'd be best suited as a Mike linebacker in a four three in certain packages at, at the next level. And where he's going to end up making his money is as a run defender. He is a lunch pail type player who you can count on to give you a hundred percent, not just on the field, but off the field as well. He's, he's good for the locker room. He'll be good for the community that for whatever team he goes to. And for me, he is a quote unquote process guy. He is a guy I could definitely see the bills looking to bring in to maybe rotate in and out with Matt Milano. And I just, I, I like him because he is one of those players that, you what you see is what you get with him, and you're gonna really enjoy watching him play because he is full intensity all the time when he's on the field. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't watch a lot of UB games. I know you've gone, you've actually got to see him live, um, but he is he's definitely been a player that I've been really intrigued with. Um, if if for some reason he makes it through the draft without getting drafted. I, I would put money on him being invited to uh, be invited to Buffalo as an undrafted free agent. And, and I would not, I would not be opposed to that. Um, you, with what you're explaining about him, as far as like being a uh, more of a run stopping linebacker um, in the middle there on a defense, um, I could probably see him on a team uh, maybe in one of the, uh, one of the North divisions, AFC or NFC North, because those teams, they just, they, all eight of those teams, they, they, 
try to run the football. They're trying to establish the run, especially playing in the cold in November and December out there in Chicago, Green Bay, Pittsburgh, Cleveland. Um, so it's I could see one of those teams um, maybe grabbing him late and just kind of helping build their defense and, and, and having him come in there. And, and maybe if he, even if he's not a starter at the next level, just kind of being a, a package guy and coming in and just – just basically helping those helping those other teams stop the run when it's uh twenty below zero. Yeah, I, I at the very least, I I agree. He is going to be a very solid depth player for a team. Um, if he doesn't get drafted, which I highly doubt, I feel like somebody should take a flyer on him, maybe in the fifth, sixth round, if he even gets that far. But if he does go undrafted, I could also see him trying to stay closer to home. He's originally from California. And he just recently participated in the Raiders and I believe even San Francisco's local pro days. So I could see him trying to go to either one of those teams to try to stay closer to home. Uh, But yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for all the UB players that are going to be in the draft this year. I I can't wait to see where these guys go. It's going to be really fun to, to kind of follow their careers going forward. So I gave you my defensive guy. You gave me your offensive guy. Who's your defensive guy? Uh, my defensive guy is Blake Cashman, uh, linebacker out of Minnesota. Um, he he's a little undersized for a linebacker at the NFL level, um, but actually looking at him, he is about the same size. He's got a little bit more weight than Khalil Hodge does. They're about the same height, um, so I mean, we're basically kind of talk about the basic, basically the same framed kind of guy uh, at Minnesota. He was. He he was their leading tackler uh, in his senior year with 104 tackles. Uh, 15 of them, 15 of them went for loss, um, and that's that's kind of where he's going to make up for his lack of size. Um, he's going to be he's he's got a nose for the ball. He's very instinctive. Um, he can track down the ball carrier and just kind of just kind of take you down. Uh, in his sophomore season is when he recorded his career high in sacks with seven and a half uh, total. Throughout his four-year career, he ended up with twelve. Um, so he can get to the quarterback. It's not as it's not really his forte, but that's not what he's going to be brought into the brought into the league to do. He, he's there to try to stop the run and, and maybe be a little bit in coverage. Uh, worst case scenario for Blake is he's going to be a special teams player with a couple spot starts. Kind of what I said about Khalil Hodge uh, at the combine. He did run a four-five forty. Uh, which puts him as the fourth fastest linebacker to participate. So he definitely has the speed. He is good in coverage, but his size is something that that GMs and scouts are going to worry about, especially if he's in coverage against a guy like Caden Smith or your 6'5 and plus bigger tight ends. Um, Currently, he is a projected draft grade between the third and the fourth round. Uh, So that's, I mean, definitely definitely going to see him on a team or at least in a, in a training camp next spring. Uh, but from a Bills fan perspective, I'd welcome Blake here with open arms. He, If we were to draft him, he could learn a lot from a guy like Lorenzo Alexander. Uh, I know Lorenzo plays on the other side because Blake probably be somebody uh, on the on the weak side. Um, but he definitely is a, a guy that I would be intrigued with. Yeah, he... I don't know that I have him as a third-round guy. He's probably more of a late four, early five for me. And his speed is what intrigues me. It's I'm not so much focused on his size. I think he would do better in coverage. Uh, given his, his speed, he'd be able to keep up with running backs out of the backfield, tight ends. 
Um, except, like, like you said, you might struggle with uh, the bigger ones like uh, Caden Smith. Guys were over 6'5". But, I mean, he did have a decent vertical. He had 37 and a half. So, he might be able to get up there and at the very least break up a pass on a guy like that. And he's got the speed to keep up with them. So that's what I'm looking at is that these guys shouldn't be able to get away from him and he should be able to stay in there and get his nose, you know, on the ball. Um, But I agree with you at the very least, he's a rotational guy and a solid special teamers. He'd be able to go in there and because he's such a sound tackler and because he's got that four or five speed, uh, he could definitely make a name for himself on on any team um, as a special teamer. So, yeah, that that's definitely a good one there for me as well, Blake Cashman. Uh, so, my guy, my offensive guy, I'm about a hundred percent positive you and anybody else probably has never heard of, and I didn't hear about him before the draft started coming up. I'm always interested in, in digging deeper and trying to find guys in maybe even smaller schools that nobody even hears about. And I believe I found a guy that I'm I'm dying to see at the next level. And his name is Ladarius Galloway, a running back out of UT Martin. So Galloway is 5'9", 200 pounds, and he is a Juco transfer. He In his 31 career games at college, he totaled over 2,400 yards on 490 carries, averaging over four four yards a carry, closer to five, really. And he had 19 rushing touchdowns along with 64 receptions for over 660 yards and two receiving touchdowns. My pro comparison for him is Maurice Jones-Drew. Now, while he may not live up to a Maurice Jones-Drew type of NFL career. Um, obviously, the jury's still out on that. We got to get him in a, a camp and on a team first. But if you watch this guy play and then you put him side by side with Maurice Jones Drew, you'd see what I'm talking about. This guy is a cannonball with legs. Uh, his stature and low center of gravity is going to allow him to not only vanish behind and shoot through smaller gaps in the offensive line, but also break away from would be tackles. Um, he shows good balance and patience while he's run, in his runs, and he possesses that one-cut ability both between the tackles and an open space that allows him to gain extra yards. So he also does well catching the ball out of the backfield. They, he's actually monikered himself as not just a running back, but even a possible slot receiver. So he does really well with that, and he has soft hands, catch the ball pretty well, and he gets his head around really quickly after the catch in order to make a move and get upfield. Solid vision, and he sets up his blocks downfield nicely. Um, one of the games that you're definitely going to want to check out to see what I'm talking about is when UT Martin played Ole Miss. This guy was phenomenal, and one of the, the worst crimes probably in collegiate football was that he didn't get the ball enough. This guy was just dynamic when they put the ball in his hands. And he had this one run that I think went for over 70-plus yards. And while he didn't make it to the end zone, he was tackled just short, probably about the two-yard line. That run was just a thing of beauty. And while he he did benefit a little bit from his, his offensive line opening some big gaps, I did see him make runs where 
He had he carried about ten guys on his back. He like I said, he made these one cut moves while still behind the offensive line and and getting around defenders and just anytime you put the ball in his hands, he has the ability to make a big play for you. And I, he's probably going to go undrafted. But if I'm a GM, as soon as Mr. Irrelevant comes is announced, I am on the phone and I am calling Ladarius Galloway and asking him to be a part of my team and to come in and try out. Well, you're absolutely right about me never hearing of this guy. Um, but I trust you. And Buffalo is definitely in the market for a running back or two, and I could definitely see them drafting one, uh, maybe not Galloway, but uh, I would not be opposed to seeing him in camp this year. And, and just based on what you said and just having him in a Bills jersey and, and maybe making the team um, just by impressing just by impressing the, the head honcho guys, uh, I, like I said, I, I've not heard of him. I really don't have a lot to say about him. And I'm not gonna just make stuff up based on what I see off of Google. So I definitely, uh, definitely agree with you. Um, I, I don't imagine him getting drafted. There's the running back class isn't really super deep, but it does uh, definitely about 15 to 16 other guys that that may be going before him. So he he'd probably be grabbing a spot off of uh, just like you said after Mr. Relevance called. Uh, speaking of draft, though. Uh, recently, three guys and myself from the fantasy football fraternity, we participated in a full seven-round mock draft uh, where we actually we allowed trades. There wasn't a lot of trades, but uh, we did we did have a couple. Um, and we'll be going over the results on my podcast later on later on this coming week on Great Lakes Football Talk. But I just want to mention where the four players that we talked about landed and 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 who they went to. Uh, so starting with Caden Smith, he was drafted in the fourth round, pick number 10 to the Buffalo Bills. Um, I was in charge of that team, and I took him there, uh, passing on uh, Sternberger and Irv Smith and Noah Fant and TJ Hawkinson. I decided to uh, load up with some other talent and take – and I, I, targeted Kay, I was targeting Caden Smith since I went into the draft. I knew I wanted to grab him. Um, I was just – waiting for the perfect time to get them. And I was looking at other places to, or other prospects to grab. So I grabbed them and, and found a perfect spot to grab Caden Smith. So I took him with uh, the fourth, fourth round pick 10. Uh, your first guy you mentioned, uh, Khalil Hodge, he went in the sixth round pick number 26 to the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, the, my, my defensive guy that I talked about, Blake Cashman, he read in the f- he actually went in the fourth round three picks later after Caden Smith to the Panthers at pick 13. And then Ladarius Galloway was undrafted. None of the guys in my in, in our league really knew who he was. And I had to ask. I was like, hey, I went to my group chat and said, hey, did Ladarius uh, Galloway get drafted? And and they said no because uh, I, I did not. I don't remember seeing his name. But I wanted they to said make sure. no or they said who? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, I'm sure – the one guy he's he's heavy into the draft he may have heard of his name but uh the other two were they just they're like no i don't think so but we'll double check but yeah he he did not get drafted in in our in our seven round draft and what was that that was a two week long seven round mock draft it actually it went a little under two weeks i think we we finished it in about a week uh we were knocking out 
there's certain times of the day where we really didn't get much done because of uh, obviously our day jobs and, and stuff like that. But in the evening, in the get, getting into the nighttime, we we were getting a lot done, and um, and ended up we just finished up on Thursday night, I believe it was, um, and just kind of zoomed through the last couple rounds. Uh, but legitly picking, picking for a need, picking best player available, but and, and picking players not like doubling and tripling up on positions already just because we want to get done. We were, it was a legit seven round mock that we had a lot of fun with, and I would definitely do it again. Yeah, and I, I give you guys credit because, like you said, it wasn't just straight through like you guys made trades that you had to account for and i mean there was there was a lot of stuff it was it was basically an actual draft and if i if i can make a, a suggestion i would say do it every year when you get to april and it's a little bit closer to the draft a marathon mock draft that's what i would call it i think that's really cool yeah it, it was awesome um we we announced at the beginning that we wanted to do trades and we actually had a we had a so the way that it went down was I took care of the East team. So I had everybody from the AFC East and NFC East. Um, my partner on my podcast, Great Lakes Football Talk, he is a Lions fan. So he had all the North teams, AFC and NFC North. Uh, we have a Broncos fan who was in our group. So he had all the West teams. And then the fourth guy, he's a Redskins fan. Obviously, they're in the NFC East. So what we did was he had all the South teams, but I took Tampa Bay from him and I gave him Washington so he could pick for his team. So we kind of broke it down like that. Um, being that I had the Giants, I had a, I had a trade offer out there for Josh Rosen. I think we ended up trading the the 34th overall pick uh, or 35th overall pick. Actually, I have it right here. Uh, New York Giants received Josh Rosen and for to Arizona for the fifth pick of the second round. So just straight up fifth pick of the second round, got Josh Rosen. Um, and that was, that trade was made before uh, I picked for the giants at number six. So it kind of helped me with, I didn't have to go quarterback. So uh, DK Metcalf, I went with number six and then at 17, I went Montez sweat. Um, and that made Dwayne Haskins fall, which led to the dolphins trading up with Detroit to jump to jump the Broncos uh, to get Dwayne Haskins. So he ended up going there and it was just, it was just fun all the way around. Yeah. I, I love the aspect that you guys had, that you had the trade aspect involved because that really keeps everyone on their toes. I mean, if you're going straight through, you know, it's, it can be a little exhausting that way only because, or it's actually probably less exhausting because you're just going straight through. You already know your picks and it is what it is and you keep moving on. But if you guys got trading and, and there's you're losing picks or gaining picks and and you have to account for even players that aren't part of the draft like the Josh Rosen trade, I mean that that's a lot to consider and that's a that's a lot. Like I can see why it took just under two weeks, but like I said, marathon mock draft every year that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, next year we'd like to get a little a couple more people involved. I know I asked you about it this year; it was a little bit too late for you, um, but definitely want to get maybe another four people involved. Have uh, have everybody grab a division and, and and maybe work it out that way. Yeah, that that sounds good. I think that I would definitely want to be a part of something like that. If you know, there's more people, and instead of having to account for multiple divisions, if everyone's in charge of one division, that would be that would be really interesting to see. And with all the trading and it's, I always wanted, I think everyone kind of dreams of being involved in an actual draft and especially one for your own team. So yeah, that would be a lot of fun. That would, that would be cool. 
Yeah. Okay, so we're going to be sticking with draft stuff here. And especially, like I said, it's April. We're, we're getting close. We're just, what, just under two weeks out almost uh, before the first pick is, is on the board. And I want to make public an opinion of mine that it's in regards to the Bills, obviously. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it'll garner some WTF-type looks in my general direction. But all I ask is keep an open mind and hear me out. And my opinion for the Bills in the upcoming draft is that they should draft a quarterback. I'm going to let that sink in for a minute for some people because I'm pretty sure everyone's jaw may have dropped and they're scratching their heads and they're going, has he completely lost his mind? What the hell is he talking about? Before anyone tries to get my head examined, just, you know, hear me out. Currently, the quarterback depth chart for the Bills is as such. Josh Allen, Matt Barkley, and Derek Anderson. Now, Allen, without question, is quote-unquote the guy for now. Barkley had one decent game against the Jets last season, and Anderson, in my opinion, is nothing more than a quarterback's coach who just so happens to be an active player. Now, essentially, you have a young, promising quarterback heading into his sophomore year with tons of expectations and pressure to succeed. Barkley is your quintessential veteran backup, and you've got Anderson, who is the guy that no longer can do, so he teaches. And he's taking up a roster spot on your team. So now I have no doubt that at at some point, just after the draft for rookie minicamp and possibly even training camp, they'll bring in another arm. But instead of bringing in just anyone, why not spend like a sixth or seventh round pick, which you have two of, on a quarterback that you've scouted and you have rated higher on your board? More times than not, these are just throwaway picks anyway due to the drop-off in talent once you get past the fourth and fifth round. And you don't have to look any further than last year's seventh-round pick, Austin Prohl, who was waived right before the start of the season. So where's the downside to taking a flyer on one of these young signal callers, especially when it's at a position that literally makes or breaks franchises? It's not like anyone would see it as a threat to Allen's job or anything either. I mean, back in 2012, Washington selected Heisman Trophy winner Robert Griffin with a second overall pick, and in the same exact draft, selected Kirk Cousins in the fourth. So, I ask you, Jerry, do you think I'm crazy? So, after we were texting back and forth, and I gave you my one-word answer of simply, no, I don't want to draft (laughs) a quarterback, I, I do... I was thinking about it from both sides and, and I do, I, I do agree with you from where you're coming from, but I'm still going to stick with my answer. I, I don't think they should draft a quarterback. Um, I do agree that we don't have a, I would not trust any of the backup quarterbacks that we have on the roster to come in. If say we're in a playoff spot or, or fighting for the playoffs and it's week 14 or so, and, and Allen goes down um, and, he's out for two weeks and none of these two quarterbacks that are behind him. I, I don't trust to come in and, and kind of hold on to that spot. You're definitely correct there. Um, but I really, I don't want to, I, I don't want to bring another guy in. Yeah. Six round guy is not going to threaten Josh Allen, but at the same time, it's, you're better off just grabbing 
somebody else that you're that has a better chance of coming in and, and being something on this roster than a quarterback. I mean, from in our eyes right now, and in the GM's eyes, and in McDermott's eyes, Josh Allen is the guy. And you don't want to have, obviously, you want depth and you want talent, but you don't want to have a guy that that could potentially come in and steal his job or 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 anything like that. So why not? Or grab- do you? Or do you? Because let's be honest. The jury is still out on Allen, and we don't know that he is the guy going forward, that he is going to cement his place in Bill's history, and he is going to be the savior that we've all been hoping for since Jim Kelly, and he's going to be our franchise guy. Like, Is it really so hard to believe that you you have this guy that you, you traded up to, you selected in the first round, and he fails. No, because it's happened so many times before. And then you find yourself in the cycle again, looking for the franchise guy, checking the first round. And I, again, Washington, to me, was ahead of the curve in 2012. Even though they took their second overall pick, they took who they thought was going to be a franchise guy. They selected a guy just two round, or three rounds later, and look what happened there. They are the perfect litmus test for why any team, not just the Bills, but any team looking for a quarterback should be selecting multiple quarterbacks every year until you find the guy. Because that is the most important position in all of football. And again, who's to say that the guy you select in the sixth or seventh round is going to even be on this team? Again, Austin Prohl, gone. Never even saw a regular season game with the Bills. Did we waste that pick? Should we have picked somebody else? There's no guarantee that any of these guys ever make the roster. So what do you lose by picking a quarterback? Again, you don't trust the guys that back up Allen to come in. And my thing is, if, again, Anderson to me, he's I don't even see him as a third-string quarterback. So if you've got Allen and then you've got Barkley, who is essentially your veteran backup, then why not have another young arm behind him? So you've got the first-round guy that you brought in to be your franchise quarterback, and you're waiting to see how he develops. You've got your veteran that's going to help that young guy, but also come in and play a game if you need him to, and he knows what he's doing. He's not going to be shaking in his boots. And you've got another young quarterback that's going to learn behind them and and, and going to raise his um, his ability and, and his work ethic and everything. It, it just makes sense to always have somebody else waiting. One of the guys that I would love for the Bills to look at and bring in, maybe in the sixth round, Brett Rippon, if he makes it that far out of Boise State. I would love to see the quarterback depth chart be Josh Allen, Matt Barkley, Brett Rippon. Because God forbid something should happen and Allen isn't the guy. You've already got a guy who's been waiting a year or two on your team. And, and has learned the system and has had a chance to, to play some preseason games and just, you know, come along and develop. And then you've got another young guy you could try out and see if he's the guy. I, I like the idea of having an insurance policy, especially, again, at a position that is of the utmost importance to your franchise. You're, you definitely make valid points. Um, I'm, I'm still going to stick with no. And 
your your points even make a little bit more sense just looking at I have currently the uh, the free agent quarterbacks that are available, and I definitely don't want to bring any of these guys in. You're looking at guys like, well, Josh McCown will probably be the number one guy that's that's left on the list, and um, but guys like Tom Savage, Geno Smith, Matt Castle, who was already here, Mark Sanchez. Um, yeah, I mean, we're either going to the going into the 2019 season with uh, the guys that we currently have now. Uh, or taking your crazy approach and, and, and drafting a guy, or uh, or grabbing one of these guys that um, are at this point just just journeymen. So um, again, like I said, I I'd rather use that pick, and, and and your numbers do make sense with uh, the the player most likely, or there's not a really good chance of him ending up on the team. Um, but grabbing like a guard or a cornerback or or somebody that that potentially has a chance to be on the field in 2019 instead of uh, being third string on the bench behind Josh Allen and uh, Matt Barkley. I was really hoping to get you on my side on this one, Jerry. I was really hoping I could convince you. And I feel like part of me has, but you're just being so defiant. Because you, you, part of you know you're, it's screaming inside. You know I'm right. You know that if you're going to pick a position that, especially at a pick that you know that the guy might not even be on the roster come opening day, why not have him be quarterback? Why not? What, what's the worst that can happen? You pick him, you bring him in, you see how he is in mini camp, you see how he is in training camp, and then if he doesn't make the roster, where does he end up? Your practice squad. He ends up on your scout team. I mean, to me, it makes sense. I'm... I am of mind that you should always be cultivating talent at the quarterback position. That is the nucleus of your team. That is the one that you go to for leadership. That is the one that, I mean, it's a passing league. That's what it is now. That's what it's evolved. It's evolved, not just style of play. It's evolved because of the rules, the rules. I mean, just last year, they set records for, what was it? Passing yards in a year. I mean, it's just, Everything points in the direction of the quarterback. He's the guy. So I don't care that we spent, what was it, a six-round pick? Or a sixth, uh, sixth overall pick? Seventh overall pick on Josh Allen? Yep, just seven. last year? Seventh. I don't care. Why? Because, first of all, there, are, there were plenty of questions coming out about him already and whether he'd be able to his, – his game would translate and if he'd be a good NFL quarterback. And – while he, he showed some flashes, he didn't wow anybody, I don't think. I mean, the only time I could really remember him, quote-unquote, wowing anybody was during the Minnesota game. That's when he, quote-unquote, wowed people. But he did a decent enough job, you know, considering what he had to work with and coming back from the injury. And it was, it was pretty dysfunctional at that position, you know, from the get-go. But... Again, I haven't lost hope in the guy. I'm, I'm hoping it works out because that's what you want. But I'm not foolish either. We've seen this happen plenty of times. It happened with Robert Griffin. It happened with, you know, Blaine Gabbert when he was picked. It's happened so many times to so many first-round quarterbacks that it's foolish not to have an insurance policy. And I believe that that's where this team should be, especially this team who has been searching for years. And we have had, there's, I mean, 
you saw that you see the jersey that used to hang up in that store in Cleveland with all the names of the quarterbacks they've gone through. The Bills has a list probably just as long. And I'm waiting for the day where we, you know, we don't have to count names anymore. And it's that guy. But in the meantime, why not? I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to us. Uh, remember to get the word out to everyone you know and tell them they can find us on all the major platforms like Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and, of course, right here on Anchor. Uh, thanks again for listening. And be sure to be on the lookout for Episode 5 when it drops. Uh, Jerry, you got anything else coming up that you want the, the listeners to know about? Uh, yeah, so we touched on it a little earlier. We're, we have our uh, seven-round mock um, results show coming up this week. Uh, we also have been in contact with uh, – Clifton Duck uh, prospect that is in this year's draft. Um, we've, I, I know I, I kind of hinted about Greedy Williams, uh, cornerback out of LSU, uh, still trying to get him on. So I know we've been in contact with his agents. Um, our, our show, Great Lakes Football Talk, we've talked to Kelvin Harmon already. Um, and it, it's, it's good football talk. Just, just come check us out. Great Lakes Football Talk. We're on all the, all the podcast stations. And we just got a lot of uh, just a lot of shows planned that we're just trying to put together and, and, and put out some good content for to get us through the off season and and kind of just get our football fix. That sounds good. I know I'm going to be on the lookout for that. Make sure you all are on the lookout for that too. And thanks again, Jerry, for joining me. It was a lot of fun, a lot of good talk. And we'll see everybody hopefully next week.